You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, I speak with Atif Javid, who is the executive director and founder of Tarjimli, a tech nonprofit with the mission of eliminating language barriers for refugees. He served as an interpreter for his own refugee and immigrant family and graduated from MIT during the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. In 2017, his team joined Y Combinator and launched Tarjimli, an app that enables bilinguals to volunteer as translators for refugees and NGOs, which has helped 25,000 people overcome language barriers globally. He was awarded Forbes 30 Under 30, Silicon Valley Business Journal's 40 Under 40, the Echoing Green Fellowship, and the MIT Martin Luther King Service Award. They have 25,000 volunteers. They've translated almost one and a half million words, but he'll tell you in the episode why that doesn't matter. And they're doing 500 sessions a week of translation. I was a funder prior to forming the Giving Circle. And this is the kind of tech nonprofit that we support through the Giving Circle. So if it interests you, please check it out. We talk about on this episode, how to get started, including choosing a problem, picking a nonprofit or B Corp structure, talk about vanity metrics and what metrics really matter and the challenges of working in the humanitarian sector. There's some tough material in here, but I think you'll enjoy it because he's so optimistic. Stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Happy to be here. So what is the state of the refugee crisis today? In the last few years, the refugee crisis has been getting significantly worse. We've gone from 65 million displaced people around the world to now 85 million with a combination of political instability, climate change. All of these things are contributing to more and more displaced people around the world, sadly. And I think what's most salient is that it's kind of fallen out of the news cycle uh, most recently, especially in a post-Trump era, in a you know post-Syrian sort of Syrian refugee crisis era. There's a lot of things that have changed in the last few years, but uh, more and more we're starting to see you know, some uh, different areas in around the world that are seeing refugee crisis take uh, take a significant place. In particular, at the U.S. border, that's a big place where, you know, it, it kind of drew a lot of attention in news during the during the Trump era. But the reality is on the ground today, it's, it's almost as bad as it was before. Uh, there's still detention centers. There's still many people fleeing instability and climate change in Latin America. And Really around the world, you have like this new breed of people who are going from sort of refugee camp scenario to detention center scenario as more countries start to create these restrictions around the world for immigration. And, you know, this is just the rea reality of where the world's going. The more we have instability, the more we have climate change, the more uh, we're going to see displaced people uh, grow and those populations grow around the world. I think the United Nations expecting um, us to break 100 million displaced people around the world quite soon. So uh, it's, a, it's a sad reality, but there's a lot of things we can do to help. And are you able to help regardless of where people are? 
yeah, there is definitely ways to help uh, around the world, whether you're trying to volunteer your time on something like Terjimli, where you can volunteer to help from a mobile app and volunteer your skills, whether you have money to donate. There are so many causes and so many places out there where you can contribute that are going to have meaningful impact on refugees on the ground today. Uh, and then there's political activism. So being a part of signing petitions, um, urging your representatives in either the United States or other countries to really take action against uh, you know the kind of uh, xenophobia and xenophobic policies that we're seeing come up and crop up around the world today. There's a lot of things that you as an individual can do. And, you know, our whole belief system is around that it is a human right to be heard and understood. And we believe at Sir Jim Lee, we're giving people the opportunity around the world to help be part of the solution for refugees getting access to language, justice and language support. So the more people that are out there willing to volunteer 10, 15 minutes of their time and help a refugee on the phone, the better off our world can be. And more importantly, I think the education is really the starting point for people when they understand, you know, even for myself, I never even realized how big of a problem the language barrier was on the on the ground in refugee camps. You know, I thought it was, you know, your standard things, food, water, shelter, medicine, health. These are all definitely pain points. But you can imagine something as fundamental and simple as just language, language access and, and the ability to talk to the people and organizations around you. Like this is this is this is what causes so much friction and 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 uh, issues around the world. So there are many things that individuals can do today to help. And I think it's a matter of getting knowledge out there and, and letting people know what's what, what exists. So when you talk about someone volunteering, can you explain more how the service works? The way that we've designed Terjimli is kind of like Uber for translators. The idea is that you can sign up on Terjimli if you're a bilingual. So you speak multiple languages and then any you know number of languages is helpful. You basically fill out a profile, you go through a code of conduct. Um, there's some trainings that you can take to learn how to be a good interpreter or translator. But the reality is like you can provide like 80 to 90% of the quality service that a that a translator who's on the ground could provide by, by just learning what it takes to be a good translator um, through a little bit of training. At that point on Terjimli, you just wait to get re requests from humanitarians or people in need, immigrants, refugees, whoever picks up the phone on the other side as a beneficiary, they can request a language that they need support in. And what happens is we ping a pool of volunteer translators around the world that match the profile for that request. So think like time zones, dialects, whatever things that would sort would, would work to basically get you the best available translator, we ping that community. And then every 30 seconds, we ping more and more people in the community um, for that particular language. And then the first person who is available uh, picks up the request and accepts, they get connected into a chat session where they can text, send voice notes, send pictures, documents, and then even get on a live phone call. What we're finding is most of the people are looking to have on-demand interpretation. Uh, there's a lot of services out in the world today for translation of documents and texts, but there's very, very few services that are cheap, free, reliable, and, and provide the level of language support that Sir Jim Lee does for interpretation, which is audio, uh, audio uh, translation interpretation. So we've really found a great niche here, but all it takes is 15 minutes of your time to just sign up, create a profile. And then when you know, you are available, you can either accept or decline those requests as they come in. And there's no commitment from your side. You either say, hey, I'm not available, or you accept the request and you spend that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is to help a person in need on the other end. 
And that could be in such a wide array of scenarios. People had it in rescue scenarios um, off the Mediterranean uh, coast. They've had it in health scenarios where they've, you know, some uh, uh, refugee has needed to communicate to get some medicine or get instructions from from a health clinic. They've had scenarios at the detention centers where, you know, an immigration attorney is trying to explain their rights. They have day-to-day scenarios where someone, you know, who's come from country overseas, like Eritrea, who speaks Tigrinya and, and, and doesn't, you know, know the rules and customs and the laws or or signs or anything around them, they can get help, support, resettling in a new country, signing their kids up for school or, you know, any any kind of day-to-day activity like that. So we have this wide array of scenarios where people can help with. And I think it's uh, it's really exciting to see that that any volunteer around the world who has that you know ability to speak fluently in their native language, they can be a, a lifesaver for a, a refugee or an immigrant in need. So it's a platform based on mobile phones where one side, humanitarian or refugees are getting interpretive translation services. And on the other side, people are doing micro-volunteering on demand. Is that, is that the right way to think about it? Exactly. You got it. Yeah. And that micro-volunteering opportunities can come up at any time in the day and you have no commitment to them, but you are able to kind of plug into a scenario right from your couch instead of sort of scrolling through Netflix and Facebook. You can um, literally pick up a call and spend 15 minutes helping a refugee or immigrant in need. And it is somewhat of a marketplace. We haven't made it in a way where it's like, there's profiles and you pick those profiles. We try to make it an extremely synchronous and real-time experience. So the, you know, the reality is uh, as a service, you know, you don't necessarily care too much about who your Uber driver is. You expect that they'll be able to drive you to your location. You'll expect that you can walk outside and within three to five minutes, you can get an Uber driver. The same way we expect that you could get a translator onto Jingli within say three to five minutes and be able to, you know, have them basically service that, that the request or that need for translation. Um, and you don't necessarily need to have profiles and do a ton of vetting, but you can create this experience where people are being able to serve each other without a traditional marketplace structure but it's sort of the on-demand, synchronous, real-time experience. And is it working? Do people get help that quickly? Yeah, actually, what's really cool about it is um, the more translators we have in the system, the faster it works. So we have this kind of goal of reaching a two-minute SLA for anybody on the platform, but obviously there's a huge distribution of translators for different languages. So a language like Spanish or Arabic, where we have several thousands of translators, I think we have close to six, 7,000 Arabic translators, you can get serviced and connected to a translator in less than 30 seconds, which is like amazing. <laughs> Consistently, you can pick up Terjimli and get connected in less than 30 seconds to, to an Arabic or Spanish or French translator. and. For other languages that are more rare, it may take three minutes, five minutes, potentially even up to 10 minutes to get connected to someone. But it is working. We've helped over 25,000 people get connected, or sorry, 25,000 times we've connected people to a translator on demand. And we have now about 25,000 translators on, on the uh, supply side of the equation, which has just really, really helped a lot with, uh, with the service. Wow. When we first talked about it, one of the questions I had was about automation. And when you think about a language like French or Arabic, I mean, can I just pick up Google Translate and have that do the work for me? This is this is the tough thing, right? Like a lot of people think, yes, for most languages, you can just pick up uh, machine translation and you'll be good to go. 
But generally, if you're dealing in a humanitarian context, like the risk of getting things wrong or even a few words wrong can be sort of life or death in some cases. And, and they're very high risk scenarios. Even a humanitarian organization would not recommend ever using Google Translate, even for regular day to day things. If it's not like a high risk scenario, they would not recommend using Google Translation for everything. The reality is we look at languages like French and Spanish, which are very economically powerful languages, and we say, oh, it works for those two languages. Uh, you know, it must work for uh, for, for, for everything else, but there's an enormous long tail of languages. I mean, even a language like Arabic, which has so many dialects, has, you know, I think 400 million speakers around the world is pretty bad. Like it's, it's consistently known to be pretty bad on Google Translate. And so it would never work in a scenario. I remember reading a scenario where uh, the word was for uh, psoriasis and it completely just jumbled the word, word on Google Translate. So like uh, a doctor who's trying to explain to a patient, you know, this is the condition that you have psoriasis. They, they couldn't, you, you could never use Google Translate to be able to communicate that. So I think the human component is really important too, where you kind of develop trust. And then there's also the reality of the, 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 the world where humanitarian organizations have used, you know, in-person uh, interpreters for so long that the trust level around machine translation is so low. And, and in general, trust around technology is very low in the humanitarian sector. So by kind of being in the middle where we're saying, look, we want to combine technology and human power and not just saying we want to go straight all the way to automation. I think we can build a lot of trust with the humanitarian entities on the ground that, that do this work and the refugees and immigrants themselves. So that that's kind of like the, you know, the humanitarian combat that we're going against with, the, with technology. There's like lack of trust on the ground with people and we have to push against that. But generally speaking, yeah, machine translation in the long term, probably in several years time, will be get to a place where it can supersede at scale the translation that's needed from a, a human interpreter, human translator. Part of the other problem is just sort of language, like voice and being able to provide that, right? Like you can translate text very, very efficiently because it's, it's so consistent, the data for text, but, you know, a voice conversation, if I send you a voice note, it's pretty difficult to be able to interpret that, right? So this is another reason why we're trying to lean a lot into interpretation instead of translation of text. And perhaps we can even contribute with these, you know, this long tail of languages. The people who use Turgeon the most today are people who are looking for, you know, slightly rare languages, you know, Tigrinya, Somali, Swahili. Um, they're not like rare, rare, but they're, you know, not as economically powerful languages. So the machine translation, the content that it learns that that's been training on, on the internet is very low. Like how much Kurdish text is there on the internet, right? It's like, it's very, very bad. Um, the kind of machine translation there is for the long tail of languages because most content is not available online in that standpoint. So it's really about the access to people who otherwise would not get translation and not get support at all because they don't speak certain languages. So for example, you'd think that, oh, you know, the distribution of languages that are powerful in the world would probably be equal for refugees. And that's not necessarily the case at all. In fact, like you think, okay, a lot of refugees speak French, probably, you know, a high percentage of people that are in a refugee camp will speak French. But the reality is those refugee camps have like 20 to 25, even 30 different language um, communities in them. So all of those communities, they like can't even talk to each other, let alone the humanitarians that are there trying to provide support for them. Um, so when, the, when people are basically have their turn that one chance in a month, to see a doctor, to see an immigration attorney, and they don't speak one of the two or three key languages like Arabic, Spanish, or French, then they're basically completely screwed and they're not serviced at all. So the, the fact that they can't be serviced at all is kind of the real key pain point that we're trying to you know, solve for where people who are getting serviced or you know, they, there's not a high volume of service for them, 
those people are tend to be fine because they can get interpreters, they can, you know, um, use existing systems. But these other language communities, the other 17 language communities in the camp, they're completely underserved and they have no access to any services because of that. So access is important. There's a wide variety of languages and they're not well understood by machines who are just reading things on the internet. That makes sense to me. But given all of that variety and that scale, how do you maintain quality? Yeah, that's a really, really tough challenge. Part of that has been, we're trying to use sort of similar models that other sort of marketplace tools use by having things like trainings, having things like a score uh, for translators, right? So the more we, we kind of have reviews on both ends of sessions, so we can get a score. We even have people who are manually sort of reviewing sessions for, for uh, quality and, and, and um, you know, abuse and, and, and making sure there's no issues on the platform. So we use a lot of that tagging and data to try to create scoring models for translators. Um, one of the things that we're starting to put in is training. So there actually be like trainings or tests for languages. And then we can kind of create this differentiation between sort of high quality, maybe elite premier translators versus average volunteer people who have just signed up on the application. But yeah, quality is a very difficult challenge. In general, we found that what's interesting about volunteers, and this is kind of mind blowing, volunteers are going to always under represent their level of quality um, when it comes to their ability versus paid interpreters and paid translators will always overrepresent their ability and, and their uh, level of quality. And that's because they obviously want to be paid, right? So they, they want to, you know, um, be able to, you know, translate for five, six languages and, you know, get the certification and be able to get paid for those opportunities. But volunteers are almost the exact opposite. They, they're like worried about, oh, am I good enough? I'm not sure. But, you know, they're, if they're a bilingual native speaker, they're already probably like 80%, 90% better than anybody who's gone and gotten five or six certifications in a particular language um, that you can kind of get online and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see that dynamic play out where volunteers are actually really high quality also because they are native speakers, right? They're not people who've become professionally trained and, and certified for many, many different languages because it's their occupation or their business. They are actually people who are like, oh, my mom and dad speak this and I speak that at home with my parents. So, you know, I could absolutely help someone in need because it's so colloquial, uh, the conversation. So I think, I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic there. Um, but yeah, the scaling quality, I think, is a really, really tough challenge. And we're trying to use systems that we've seen uh, other marketplace tools use to, to manage quality. That's interesting that uh, volunteers are underselling themselves. And you really yeah. emphasize that you're not paying them. Are you charging for the services? No, so we don't uh, charge at all for people's time. And this is actually something we were really sensitive about because as a nonprofit, as a 501c3, as a an organization that wants to build this movement of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are volunteering, if we really believe truly in the micro-volunteering model, we don't want to turn off our volunteers by saying, hey, we're, you know, you can volunteer, but then we're charging for your time on the other end. But there's obviously, obviously these kind of pressures to be able to build sort of an, an earned revenue model, to be able to try to grow a sustainable nonprofit, to find things that are more um, sustainable for the organization than just a purely donation-based system. Um, and what we've tried to do is create a system that's based on 
on our technology and our time as you know software engineers developing the tools. So the paid version of Terjimly is more about the feature set that you have available to you. So things like three-way calling that costs us money because we have to pay for Twilio numbers, things like you know filters that we had to add, had to add on um, as features. We've, we've kind of had these in a premium version of Terjimly. This is something that we launched early this year and it was out of the need to actually service the humanitarian organizations uh, first, uh, primarily. So we actually started Terjimly a few years back being super laser focused on the refugees themselves, but for a whole host of reasons, it was extremely difficult to actually target them and get them the service that they needed. And, and part of that makes sense because when you're a refugee, your day-to-day -day is usually you know, not language constrained, but that moment when you have to talk to the doctor or the attorney or the resettlement counselor or the, the mental, ther mental health therapist, you really need the interpreter um, available to you. So really the, the key user to, to enable was the humanitarians also because we could kind of partner with them, work closely with them. So we made Surgimly Premium such that they could actually get a, a higher level of service. They would be able to, you know, have a things like no record sessions, for example. So uh, one thing we kept hearing was um, organizations didn't want any record of the conversation that they were having with uh, their clients. And so we said, okay, in Terjimly Premium, you can have no record sessions where there's no storage of any data relative to your conversation. So all of that data is, is scrubbed from our side. These are like kind of tools that we're using to basically price a premium sort of SaaS product for organizations that is independent of the time that's volunteered by the volunteers. So the volunteers basically are, are able to service uh, freely accessibly all the people uh, in, in, the, in the world to get access to Terjimli and be able to supply their translation needs. And that way a refugee and anyone in need can pick up Terjimli at any point. And we still kind of meet our accessibility needs for the world. But we have this approach to having like a business model and a revenue model that targets the humanitarians and the NGOs. So you started off, you said, approaching refugees directly, more of a yeah. B2C model. And yeah. now you've added in B2B. Yeah. Are you doing both then? The B2C is not something that we charge for at all. So going directly to refugees, they're, they're not, they're not going to pay for Terjimli ever. And the free version of Terjimli will be free and, and it'll be that way forever. And that's really like something that the refugees can use. But the premium version, which has these things that are better suited for an organization, that's going to be, that is a paid, paid version of Terjimli. And you mentioned this pressure to have earned revenue. Where is that pressure coming from? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, fundraising for a nonprofit is extremely, extremely hard. And if there is a world where you can create a certain amount of value that's solving a problem for entities that have you know funding and support and there is money because in the humanitarian sector there is a lot of money there is you know funding for a lot of the work that is done but to be a small nonprofit in this in the in the you know kind of wider ecosystem of large ngos that have been around for 20 30 years to be a nonprofit that's extremely technology oriented you know we're not delivering food and medicine and water the same way that the kind of you know uh, nonprofits that you might traditionally donate to are that's very traditional and that's what people know like that's what they, they, it makes sense to them. It's very clear and obvious. And there are these buckets, 
in traditional philanthropy that people donate to, you know, I donate to health, I donate to immigration, I donate to uh, medicine. These are things that I would donate to because they're traditional buckets. And the, the philanthropy sort of world has a lot of these traditional buckets that they focus in on to do something new and innovative and different. That's very tech centered. That's like focused on this language justice problem specifically. It's really hard to kind of fundraise uh, explicitly for that. So I think fundraising has been difficult, but we've managed to get really good partners like, you know, CSRs, like foundations, like individuals who've supported us with uh, funding. But we think that pressure comes from being able to find like that value and being able to create the value that we can use to sustainably grow Terjimli in the long term. The good thing is we do have good funders behind us that are supporting us and that, you know, I think after doing it for five, six years, you're, you, you realize it's it's always going to be a flywheel and you're going to have to keep tweaking the fly, flywheel. But if you can develop something that has sustainability, that's like the, that's the golden the golden ticket for any non, uh, nonprofit, right? It, it allows you to really focus on impact and, and what you're, what value you're adding to the world and what you're creating and be less kind of oriented towards spending 25, 30% of your time as an organization focused on fundraising for the organization. So that, that's, that's kind of like just the standard problem that every nonprofit I think is facing. But for us, I think the, 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 the idea that we could create a service that was, that was serving the humanitarian sector, if that didn't exist, then, you know, we, we would exclusively go from the fundraising route. But the fact that this has that pain point for the humanitarian sector, there might be a really good model to, to, to grow and explore there. So we're, we're starting and we're, we're trying it out, but we're not hundred percent sure it, uh, if it's going to work out. We'll have to see. You're talking about earned revenue, allowing you to switch to a default alive mode where you're not necessarily going to go out of business because you run out of cash. Exactly. Exactly. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal costs. And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Now, why did you pick a nonprofit structure? Yeah, this was a really interesting and tough decision in the early stages. Uh, I, I think it boiled down to two things. One, which was the personal goals that we had as founders to be super focused on people in need and you know, if we built this technology and, you know, raised a ton of money for it, you know, we may be drawn away from the incentives of trying to help refugees and immigrants in need, which is the key, you know, problem that we faced ourselves as immigrants and refugees, as, you know, my family, as people who, you know, moved to the United States or didn't speak the English language, that we, we faced that salient problem ourselves. So this kind of personal desire to help fix that problem was kind of a key driver to say, hey, if we go this nonprofit route, we'll be able to put the mission first and foremost, always. And we would never be beholden to, you know, for example, maybe uh, fundraising beyond that or, or raising capital. And, and this was a really tough decision early on because we, we, we got accepted into Y Combinator and then we had the decision of, hey, should we go for profit or nonprofit in Y Combinator? And uh, it, it was very tough to, to figure out. The second reason was actually the community, right? So the engine that is driving and growing Terjimli, we think the coolest thing is actually in the translator community. Like 
being able to build a SaaS tool that is purely automated, like that maybe would have less, you know, human component to it that then we wouldn't have this issue that we're running into where it's like, we don't want to do things that would be, you know, misaligned with what the translators would like to see, right? The translator is volunteering their time. So would they volunteer their time for a for-profit that's trying to kind of maximize revenue and profits? We had explored the idea of going kind of like a B Corp direction, potentially. That way we would kind of put the mission of helping, you know, refugees at the forefront. But we ultimately landed on the nonprofit because of trying to be centered on refugees and, and humanitarians. You know, if we raised venture capital, who knows, we might be just, you know, building again for economically powerful languages and, and focusing on what the Chinese market needs for translation. I don't know, right? Like <laughs> there's so many, so many different directions we probably could have gone, but we kind of stayed focused on this humanitarian mission and that allows us to center it as well as be able to continue to grow the engine of volunteers. Like if there was a world where we'd get a million translators, I think the world where we get it a million volunteers is higher likelihood or more exciting potentially from a from a model standpoint than getting a million paid translators or you know a million uh yeah basically a million paid translators isn't as exciting as getting a million volunteers who are able to basically at no cost do the translation services for people in need when i met you when you were starting or earlier on in your journey i remember remarking to other people that your founding team reminded me the most of for-profit tech startup founders <laughs> It seems like you've approached building this nonprofit very much in that way. Is that intentional? I think so. Yes. We really wanted to take the lessons of, and this was really driven by kind of the mentality that started at Y Combinator, right? Like think very deeply about product, about growth, about core product value, about uh, metrics, like in nonprofit, it's so easy to create vanity metrics that don't really mean anything, but we wanted to give this the sort of like Silicon Valley tech startup rigor that, you know, if, if we were going to give our capability and time and energy into anything that was super meaningful, uh, you know, this would be the kind of approach that we would take to it. We could go, you know, build a for-profit company and, 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 and build technology that doesn't necessarily serve it, serve the underserved or the most vulnerable, but how cool would it be to take you know, people who graduated from MIT with the best education in the world, who went through Y Combinator, the best product education, who are in Silicon Valley and actually have them solely and 100% focused on a humanitarian mission. I haven't ever seen that before to like create like a humanitarian shop that is like really focused on building technology for, for the space. Like that doesn't really exist. In fact, in many ways, Aziz and I had talked about, you know, Aziz worked for Palantir for um, a couple of years and he actually worked in the philanthropy team. And that was probably the closest thing you could possibly find to like a company that it has some sort of, you know, segment in their company that's doing sort of tech for good. Uh, and even that was like, it left much to be desired, right? You're still kind of doing things for the PR. You're still doing things for, for, for like the, 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 the social good branding that it adds, right? Like why does Palantir or any other company take on sort of for good, uh, you know, uh, good, uh, uh, good projects, social good projects. They take it on a lot for the branding and the publicity. But if we could create like a 10 person, you know, high quality engineering team in Silicon Valley that is solving some of the hardest problems for humanity, not even necessarily just translation, but some of the hardest problems for the humanitarian sector, that would be like the dream company for, for me and Aziz. So uh, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to take all those things that we've learned from tech at Silicon Valley and Y Combinator and bring them to the nonprofit space. You talked about feeling an important connection with your mission and having different goals to serve those that are not otherwise being served. When and how did you discover this mission for yourself? 
Um, it started, uh, definitely there was a personal component of seeing this problem firsthand. Like my grandmother, who didn't speak a word of English, she came to this country as a refugee from Pakistan during partition in 1947. She had not a word of English she could speak. She was always, always dependent on family. And I think like every immigrant person knows this experience and story of, you know, having family members that just rely on you to be their interpreter, to be their translator day to day. And that was really like a starting point where I said, okay, this is like a problem I know and understand extremely well. This really then took off after after MIT, when we saw the Syrian refugee crisis take fold, you know, we we went to Greece and we went to Turkey and we saw refugee cramps. Uh, we we had friends who volunteered as you know operations people, as doctors, as lawyers, and everyone wanted to help with the refugee crisis in 2017. We saw the Muslim ban take off in, in early 2018, and that was a call for. Tons of lawyers and interpreters to help at the airports and and be there to kind of stand against xenophobia, and then we saw it in the Rohingya crisis and the you know border crisis, and again and again and again we saw this. But really, the initial I think launch for us was in 2017 when we saw kind of the language barrier creating such widespread inefficiencies in refugee camps in Greece and in Turkey. Uh, it was just unbelievable the amount of different language communities that were there. It was unbelievable how many people were underserved because of language. And it was unbelievable how how simple of a problem we, we thought that this could be, right? Like myself and Aziz could go and be there for two weeks and translate on the ground. And at the end of the day, that would be an experience that was more for us than it was for the refugees. But what if we could create like a even a Google spreadsheet of all of our friends that basically speak all these languages and then connect people when they need it and give that spreadsheet. And we said, well, instead of a Google spreadsheet, what if we use this Facebook Messenger bot? That's a cool thing that's coming out. It could do all the mapping and, and connection between people. So we spun that up and said, let's see how that goes. And we launched it. And there was 3,000 people that signed up in the first week. And we said, wow, this is really cool. There's like a, definitely interest on the supply side. Like people want to. The, what's so crazy about Terjimli and that I, I couldn't believe from day one was how much how much supply demand there was, how many people wanted to volunteer. That was really the point where we we're like, wow, not only is this a problem that we've seen and experienced on the ground firsthand, it's a problem that actually has a solution with billions of people around the world who are excited and eager to help, which basically today you have like two things you can do. You can either donate money to some black box entity that's huge, you know, UNHCR, not to not to rag on the UNHCR or anything that do good work, but like you you're, you don't know where your $100 goes basically, right? Um, or you can go fly to Greece or Turkey and spend two weeks there. And really that becomes an experience that's more about you. You spent $3,000, which you could have donated to someone in need, but it is an experience about you and making you resonate more with it, less of experience that's helping people. But what if we could totally close all the, you know, geographic barriers and gaps? And, and that speaks so much to what actually a refugee experiences with barriers and borders and walls and, and, and blockages to be able to say, hey, with the phone in your hand, we can unblock all of those things for you and we can enable you to connect with a world of millions of people who are eager to help you. And we had always thought about this of like, could Terjimli be more than just translation? But I think staying focused on that key problem that we understood and we knew um, was the starting point. And our hope is in the future, we're actually starting to potentially experiment with this with a few uh, organizations who said, can we provide mental health services to children in Gaza? Like, can we provide other services through a Terjimli where now all those sort of physical barriers are breaking down, you can connect directly with what you need on the phone. Um, this, is, this has always been kind of the 
long-term humanitarian dream that we've had, but uh, you know, it requires a sense of focus on translation, which we think is like this underpinning layer across all those other services. So health, medicine, food, water, shelter, all those things, resettlement, they require a good, uh, a good efficiency when it comes to language access. And if you solve that problem, you can make all those other sectors more efficient. That's at least the way that we've been thinking about it. <laughs> Sorry, I think I went a bit on a rant. Did I, did I answer your question? <laughs> oh, definitely. And the passion comes through. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> That with us okay. and uh, some sad stories woven in there, but you're optimistic about there being solutions, which is really inspiring. I'm curious, as you stay focused on translation, as you say, how do you pick the metrics that really matter that aren't those vanity metrics? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Let me think about this one second. So th there's a cool saying that I think I remember from Y Combinator, which really made it clear to me, which is uh, a vanity metric is any metric that can't go down. So a, van a vanity metric is any metric that can't go down. And that to me made me realize, wow, I've been looking at vanity metrics like forever. Oh, words translated, number of sessions. These are all great. But like really what you want to look at is like weekly active users, sessions, like quality of sessions. You want to look at retention, like four-week cohort retention. So all of the kind of product metrics that you would expect in you know, any sort of you know, uh, SaaS, uh, SaaS technology, those are the kind of things that we look at at a day-to-day. -day. And, it, and it's actually so crazy because when we talk to funders, when we talk to other nonprofits, when we talk to people in the humanitarian space, they, they don't look for that level of rigor when it comes to the metrics. Whereas we are like literally looking at Chartio dashboards every day and going down to the nitty gritty of like, okay, what's our four week retention right now on these users, right? Um, and I think quality has been the other thing, which is like, how do you actually measure quality and you know have tagging of sessions and be able to kind of create scoring and machine learning for matching and things like this. So we, we look at a ton of different metrics like match time uh, and, and how that's reducing or changing. We look at sessions, weekly active session, uh, weekly active users, as well as uh, weekly sessions. Uh, and our goal is basically over the last kind of six months, we've been able to 10X the sessions. So we were doing in the sub 100 sessions a week. And then as we make created these partnerships with NGOs, we're now doing close to 400, 500 sessions a week. And our goal is to get to sort of 3,000, 4,000 sessions a week um, by the end of the year, if we land some of these large NGO partners, which hopefully I'll have news to share <laughs> in the future. But we, we really look at also like what I do like about the humanitarian sector is they do focus a lot on drawing the line between product metrics and impact metrics. And this is something we did really poorly in our first two, three years. And now we're trying to be very focused, like, hey, what does it actually mean to have this many weekly sessions uh, per week or have this many high quality sessions per week? What that draws to is, this many refugees had an increased quality of life because of that, or this many people more were serviced because they got a translator faster, or this many people, you know, this many uh, people were able to be serviced that could not be serviced before, or the efficiency of the service was faster. So really drawing like impact metric lines between product metrics. So we, we do a really good job with product metrics today. And now our kind of focus is how do we, how do we say, Hey, no, this is how many like lives that were like truly and actively changed because of Terjimli. One of the things we want to try and do is run sort of con uh, kind of control tests um, in different uh, different chapters. So maybe we get like a chapter of, uh, you know, one of our partners is World Relief and another is Catholic Charities. Maybe a Catholic Charities in LA uh, is using Terjimli and a Catholic Charities in New York is not using Terjimli. And we kind of see the efficiency of people that they can service because of that. I think this is a way to get really rigorous about 
drawing the, the line between your product metrics and your impact metrics. And, and that's, that's really what we're trying to do. And we, we know that Terjimli is making people as we, we know Terjimli is making organizations more efficient. We definitely know for sure we're saving a ton of money for organizations that otherwise had low budgets, were unable to, you know, be able to serve people because of the budgets that they had by giving all this translation for free. So we know that we're having that impact. It's about drawing the, the kind of theory of change line um, and being able to measure that now going forward. I really like what you said about a vanity metric is one that can't go down. And I just want to highlight and underscore that a little bit more. I think what you're saying is that vanity metrics tend to be those that are cumulative. Like, as you said, total number of translation words translated to date, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, like I love to tell funders and everyone that we've translated over a million words for people in need. But like, does that tell you how good our service is? Like, it doesn't really tell you much about time. It doesn't tell you much about like retention, volume. Like, it, it doesn't tell you much. But I think it's a it's a nice shiny thing that we can say, oh, cool, Terjimli translated over a million. I think it's almost a million and a half words now for people in need. I, when I want to talk to a funder, I would like to get in them to ask me the nitty gritty of like, hey, what does your retention matrix look like? What is like, <laughs> you know, the week over week and monthly growth look like? And I, I, we see that in Silicon Valley and for-profit companies. We don't really see that in the nonprofit space though. Now, what metrics for you have gone down? I mean, what have been the challenges? Oh yeah. I mean, we've, we've had huge spikes in retention of users. We had uh, a whole chapter, basically a uh, chapter of an NGO say, Hey, we can't use Terjimli because of your data security policy. And we need to do a review with you and our data security team. So there, there has been times when basically that key metric, which is weekly active uh, or sorry, weekly sessions, uh, sessions per week that has gone down significantly or had spiked significantly because we have this huge marketing push and, and, and campaign, but all of them have ultimately kind of leveled and normalized week over week to like that 400, 500 sessions per week metric. I think the other challenges in the nonprofit space have been like this lack of trust of technology, like the kind of diligence that people want to do and organizations want to do on Terjimli, like is so high. It's they want HIPAA compliance. They want privacy policies. They want data security. They want no record sessions. They want HIPAA compliance. Like they want so much like data security and privacy for things that like this, you, you can sense that there's this lack of trust in technology in the sector. It takes months just to go through a security review with an organization to say, yes, we can use Terjimli um, because of X, Y, Z reasons. And, you know, people who are being serviced by those organizations are in vulnerable positions, right? So like we had to go through a whole safeguarding process, which has been several months to help with, you know, um, using Terjimli to help with minors and children so so that they're allowed to, we have a full-fledged policy for managing abuse or managing any issues that come up with children. So there's all these policies that have been the biggest blocker for us. And that's really hard for, you know, me and my co-founder who are very technical people, right? We're not in the weeds of creating, you know, policies and compliance and figuring out HIPAA compliance and things like that. So we, we have gotten a lot better than where we were before, but this has definitely been the big challenge is like, overcoming the trust problems in the humanitarian sector. And then we've also had just, you know, technical challenges, right? Like it's not, I guess, trivial to be able to manage, you know, multiple different phones and different low data settings and Android, iOS, and be able to create a bug-free experience when you're using Twilio and AWS to create all the calling infrastructure. And, and in fact, we even created 
uh, three-way calling, which is something we partnered with Twilio on, which is kind of crazy. Um, they actually didn't have this uh, before, but then we helped work with their team on about an ability to add three-way calling to um, to uh, uh, to their API for us to be able to add. So if I'm a if I'm an immigration attorney going to a detention center, I don't have data. I'm barely even allowed my uh, cell phone sometimes into the detention center. They give me a landline in the in the detention center. Now I have to call the number, and then I have to pass in someone else because I'm not actually able to be with the refu with the immigrant who's detained in another room. So there's all these different layers that we'd have to kind of solve for uh, in that kind of scenario. And like this three-way calling uh, infrastructure has been really hard to put together. But that but a reliable calling center is 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 uh, something that's becoming more and more commonplace. And with things like Twilio, it's it's been you know a dream to work with. That that's really helped a lot. How do you partner with a public? tech company like Twilio when you're this small nonprofit startup? It's, it's, Twilio is awesome. They have like a .org arm of Twilio, which has just been an amazing funder, amazing supporter. They do events. They are bringing together cohorts of organizations that are doing call center technologies. And, you know, we basically talked with uh, our partners there and said, this is like a key engineering problem we have. Can you connect us with engineers? And then over the course of like multiple months, we sat and worked with them and they had engineers work on the project with us. And it, it, it was really amazing. Like they wrote a whole blog post about it and everything uh, and, and really exciting to be a part of uh, something like that with them. But yeah, it's just multiple months of like working with it. It, it. it was really incredible that, you know, a small organization with this need could facilitate it. But I think that speaks to like the passion that people in Silicon Valley that work at these tech companies also have for doing technology for good, right? And the fact that Twilio has that arm is really awesome, um, but it's not just a fundraising arm. It's a way to lever their employees for good and be part of solving problems. And, you know, this is so persistent in Silicon Valley today. Like the number of people who are just like, the number of talented, smart, capable engineers that are in their job and are just like working on stuff that they are not super excited by or not passionate by, but they're paid obscene amounts of money. So they're absolutely going to work for that because of whatever, you know, socioeconomic reasons, but to give them an opportunity where, you know, 20% or 30%, I can work on a, a cool side project like this and help a NGO give access to refugees language justice. Like that's amazing. That's the kind of, that's the kind of partnership that we need to see more of in the CSR space, but it's really hard because being able to manage those projects and manage like that volunteer engineer, you, you need very strong technical people in both sides of the organization to do something like that. And so it's hard for nonprofits to do it because they generally don't have strong technical founders um, that are, you know, leading their teams. But then it's also hard for the organizations where they're like, oh, how do I set up this like volunteer thing for these teams and make sure that it's not taking away from their core work? It, it's very difficult to figure out, but I think the sector is getting a lot better at it, which is cool. That's great to hear. I'm glad to hear about all those passionate, mission-driven people. If they were to think about starting their own tech nonprofit, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, my advice would be definitely starting at like the really key pain point as with any business, as with any company, any startup you've probably heard is like start with that key pain point. Like if you understand the problem in an extreme amount of detail, then that really gives you a huge leg up in being able to create a solution for it. And oftentimes the solutions are quite simple, quite you know obvious, and it's a matter of just spinning it up, experimenting and trying it. My, my recommendation is uh, continue to build stuff on the side that potentially can service people in need. And if you see those problems, just go out and, and, and build those things and really partner with the organizations that are out there. Like organizations like Fast Forward, like Full Circle, 
Medical Fund. They do an amazing job at connecting volunteer people in uh, in Silicon Valley with with organizations and nonprofits that are already doing great mission things. And as a nonprofit, like we're already very used to creating these very discrete, concrete projects to give to volunteers or to give to interns and say, here's the project that you can work on for a month or two or whatever. And then, you know, if if that really takes off, if that's something you're extremely passionate about, go work for that nonprofit. Like I think we need to take more more people need to take that leap of faith and say, look, I'm golden handcuffs are nice for a little while, but then at some point you got to take a leap and work for a, a nonprofit and, and, you know, just have some really big impact. And the amount of impact and responsibility and, and control you can have is just orders of magnitude larger than what you could at a, at a large company. Um, and I think we need to kind of work on closing that gap where, you know, there, there's no way that we'll ever be able to pay the amount that a Google or a Facebook can pay. And so for that reason, people need to have these options available to them that they can work with their with their spare time or with some of their time they can dedicate to um, to helping these nonprofit organizations. But really being focused on the problems that you see in the world, being super focused on like, hey, at some point, like I want to take the leap and actually do this, do this thing full time. There has to be a full time effort to it. You know, a lot of projects live and die in the part time space. But at some point, you have to have that courage to take a leap of faith and, and go full time on something. And, you know, even if it doesn't work out, even if it's tough, keep pushing through it. One of the things I've always said to myself was like, what's the thing that I would wake up every day and I would always be passionate about no matter what working on it? It was this, it was this thing. It was working for refugees. Refugees just, it, it means so much to me personally. It, it, I, I see it as one of the biggest challenges the world is, is facing and the world is going to face in the future. Um, and humanitarian problems are like, speak, speak to my core as a person and, and what I want to see fixed in the world. I think a lot of things can be improved in the world and there's easy ways to do it. And technology is totally lacking when it comes to the humanitarian sector. So I saw all that and I said, this is, this is what I want to dedicate time and, 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 and my energy towards. And it's really worked out for me. And I hope that it works out for many other people who, and again, there are more organizations available today that are supporting like Y Combinator, Fast Forward, Full Circle Fund, people like Miles <laughs> that are supporting uh, organizations and nonprofits. So uh, we're in good shape, I think, for the future. Wonderful place to wrap up. Great advice. Pick the pain that's really there, a problem that matters to you. Start building on the side, but eventually take the plunge and leave your high-paid job and get help. Um, don't have any vanity metrics. Uh, yeah. I love it. I love it. It's great stuff. And, and thank you for the shout out there. Happy to be a supporter and so glad you could come on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Miles. I appreciate it. And again, thank you for being a supporter of Tajimli and giving us uh, the the space on your podcast, supporting our organization, it, it, it really means a lot to us. Uh, and being such an early funder of Terjimli, I can't tell you how much that means. So thank you also. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. Take care, Miles. Bye-bye. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter, and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.